0: to Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am your host, Tim Merriman, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, my guest is Karen Hostetter, an old friend, a master trainer with National Association for Interpretation, and she has her own consulting firm, Interpret This, which we'll learn more about today. Well, Karen, it's great to see you. It's been all of a few months. We actually spent some time together back in March. How are things with you?
1: Things are pretty good. I mean, it's been busy and, you know, the seasons have keep passing by. And
0: I've known you many years. I don't actually know where you grew up.
1: I grew up on, just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. I wow. um, went to, I know, a little, you know, big, big-ish city, I guess, for this part of the country, but not big for the rest of the world, um, and grew up in rural farming country, and uh, my house was surrounded by cornfields, and in the summer, my, at the during the summer, my brother and I would go across the street to give the farmer um, glasses of lemonade when he'd come to the, our, our end of the field on the tractor, and he, the reason being, he was our bus driver, so just a, a very much that rural lifestyle of growing up.
0: And I so. was just... Two hours west of you on Interstate 70 in Vandalia, Illinois.
1: Oh, of course.
0: And I've yeah. described it my entire life as the great corn desert.
1: <laughs> well, you could call it that. Our, around us, it'd be corn one year and wheat another and soybeans in between. So definitely saw the <laughs> rotational piece. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We had, some, yeah. we just thought of it as corn because corn was so tall and big compared to, and that's such beautiful soil. Uh, they, yeah. they had 200 and 300 bushel and acre clubs in our local, yeah. effing, uh, the future farmers of America. So some amazing, you can,
1: you can think it being the Midwest and glaciers and, you know, that we're kind of at the edge where all that soil got dropped. And so a lot of things make it a great,
0: did you go to college in Indiana?
1: I did. I went to Earlham college, which is about two hours East of or hour and a half east of Indianapolis on I-70. It's a small liberal arts school. And that was where I actually got interested in my whole field of, of what became my, my life. I mean, it was a small, like I said, small liberal arts school. And my music, my major initially was music and math. I was a double major in math and music. And so, yeah, I know. I like how people, when I say that, they're like, how does that connect? The math and the music totally connected. And I did that for a year and a half. um, But math became not fun to me. I liked math while it was a game, while the game was to get the right answer. And when it became practical, when you had to solve problems and apply it to engineering and apply it, I just thought, this is not fun. So I decided to drop it i went to my professor i we i had an a in the class and said i don't want to do this anymore and he thought i was crazy and i said no it's not fun i don't want to do it so i dropped the math and at the same time kind of decided to take my first science class i loved being outdoors i had a family i grew up on two and a half acres i you know my brother and i played outside all the time my family went to state parks we didn't camp but we would do lots of daytime kinds of trips to state parks And I just enjoyed the outdoors and decided that I was going to try a class. I was really afraid to make this the outdoors academic because I was afraid I wouldn't like it anymore. So my first class was ornithology. I took that. It was a field class. It was up at four in the morning, which I didn't mind at all. And that dropping that math and moving, trying that class just changed what I was going to do. And I moved to. I did all field. It was a self-designed major. At that time, there wasn't, well, interpretation as a study, you know that. Nobody ever heard of such a thing. And my major was outdoor education. There were three schools in the country that offered it as a degree, and my college, Earlham College, allowed you to design your own major. So that's what I did. I designed a major in outdoor ed, and I focused on field biology, education, and A little bit of history was my third. um, I had to have three areas, and that was kind of my, sort of my third one. Go ahead. Uh, That's how I was, that's how I got started in it, just by that. I kept the music as a minor, but made that switch and never looked back. I loved it.
0: Yeah, Southern Illinois University, where I attended, had an outdoor education and conservation department. And I started a Ph.D. program in it, and a year later, they killed the program off.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: Yeah, uh, a gentleman named L.B. Sharp, and I don't know whether you know that name or not, but
1: I know the name, yeah. Yeah, not the person, individual, but the name, yes.
0: When he he had come to S.I.U. shortly before he passed on, and taught for a year or two, and he left his lib- his personal library to the SIU Outdoor Labs, where I worked after I earned a master's degree.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, you know, he famously had started what were called the Time Life Camps in New Jersey, where he got mm-hmm. Time and Life Magazine to pay for kids to go out and sit in a Native American teepee and learn about Native American crafts and things. So neat. Yeah, he was a, a big shaker and mover in outdoor, mm-hmm. outdoor education. So uh, I didn't realize that you had been in a program like that so so that's
1: that's how I started that's where I started my knowledge or the fact that the outdoors could be academic and fun at the same time
0: yeah and I was going to be a biology teacher and once I worked at the outdoor labs I just learned you didn't have to be inside a classroom yeah yeah the world's your classroom so yeah where did you work first then after you got out of school
1: my it's probably my second job that had the bigger impact. My first job, I worked in the public information and education department for the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, so I was in I was basically in in marketing. Um, but that's where I started writing because I was doing um, a couple of projects that were influenced. I guess the future bit was I did some uh, feature stories. I did one on the migrating sandhill cranes. I did one on the endangered Indiana bat. So I was out in the field, you know, with people taking, doing, you know, following them on the research or just taking stuff on them, writing about it. So that was really fun. And it helped me, again, see one thing you could do with an uh, interest in the outdoors. And then I did a coloring book for them too. They wanted something for kids to do. And I did a coloring book, put together a coloring book. So a couple of different kinds of things than I had done in college, but that was just a one-year job. Then I went to work for, uh, the oh, I forgot. I also worked for right out of college. I did living history interpretation, which totally gave me a passion for living history. And I know that either something you either like and embrace or you have reservations about. I totally embrace it and really enjoyed living history. Uh, that was for Conner Prairie Pioneer Settlement <clears throat> north of Indianapolis. And only thought of. It's smaller, but thought of as a high quality of uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So it gives you the an idea of what it was like. And then I worked went to Texas and worked for a small natural history museum that also had a wildlife sanctuary. And that gave me opportunities to do things. It gave me freedom to try things. It introduced new stuff to me. So that was the probably. And that's where I learned about the field of interpretation.
0: What was the name of the program?
1: Uh, It was the Herd Natural History Museum and Wildlife Sanctuary. Great. Oh,
0: yeah, I've heard of it. I've never been there, but. um,
1: The other one people think of is the herd. There's another herd museum in Arizona, which is an art museum. So this is just started by a woman and with her who lived in the area. And it was she collected shells. And so she started this museum with her shell collection in the middle of um, Texas. So, um, but yeah, I learned about collections. I did exhibit there. I, like I said, I went on my first conference and learned about interpretations. A whole lot happened at that job. I always kind of consider that my, um, launch into the field, even though I'd had a couple of other jobs that gave me unique experiences that I used in the field, but they weren't teaching me about what interpretation was as a profession.
0: And then what took you to Colorado?
1: No, I went from Texas to Colorado, and it was just a a move because of family um, changes in jobs and things like that. And so left and came to Colorado to follow a a job, Um, not mine, a husband's job.
0: Yeah. Was Denver Zoo your? That was
1: about the first thing that I did. I did a lot of contract work for a while and did a lot of teaching at different places. I taught at the Children's Museum. I taught at uh, the Museum of Nature and Science. I taught at a lot of different places. And then I taught at, then I got on at um, the Denver Zoo. They were looking for somebody. I did a couple of part-time stuff with them too. But eventually they said, would I consider working in the education department and give up a couple of things? I was working for the A semi-competitor the Museum of Nature and Science and they're like if you work for us would you give up working for them and it's like if you make it full time but I'm not doing it just uh you know make you happy kind of thing and so yeah so then I worked at the zoo for 35 years and not 35 years I'm sorry that's almost older than I am I worked there (laughs) um for about almost 20 years 12, 12 years 15 years and then I uh, there I introduced interpretation to them it wasn't very known in the zoo world they kind of as you know hung back for a while zoos took a while to embrace interpretation so I introduced it to them and moved the uh, volunteer training from just here's all the facts about the animals to here's a ways so you can teach it to the people you know to your guests and have a little bit more meaningful interactions, so I introduced that to them, um, which was fun, and then did some major programming for them as well, educational programming.
0: Well, what was the first interpretive training that you had that you recall? It was with you. Was not really?
1: <laughs> well, the first... Formal training. Interpretive training. Yeah. I mean, the first formal training, yeah, would have been, I mean, I guess I could also say it was the conference, the first conference that I went to for AIN, which was in um, Louisiana with Bob, I can't remember his last name, Bob Thomas. but Bob Thomas, that's it, down at the Nature Center. So that was my first one. And when I was introduced to the profession, so I went to regional conferences. So that would be, you know, the first training and those sessions and things like that. And then, you know, and then it would have been the CIG program, probably. Otherwise, there are other conferences like the Texas Association for Environmental Education and some things like, you know, Project Wild and Project Learning Team. So there were some others, but they weren't specifically interpretation.
0: Yeah, I think for those of us old enough to have some history with the organizations like Association of Interpretive Naturalists before it became NAI in 1988, um so often we were having discussions about is environmental education and interpretation the same thing i know
1: i remember those conversations
0: right people i hear people say well interpretation is just (laughs) storytelling we're the same thing and i go well they're really not certainly we do storytelling as a, a a tool within what we do but it It's not the same thing. And I had a formal education background. I had a teaching certificate and uh, I had had all of the instruction in that. And I was really aware that the motivations in a state park where I first worked were very different from uh, in a classroom at a high school. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I was so thrilled in 1974 to attend my first AIN meeting and find out there that what I was doing was actually being done by a lot of other people in other places, and they knew more. They were doing it better, and they right. they had read Tilden's book, and <laughs> I'd never heard of Tilden's book, and so.
1: Well, I was just a couple of years out of college, and so just to know that there was that there were other people out there doing it, and it had a name, and they were they were resources they were you know people and places and events to go learn some things from so yeah that was real important then because i wasn't didn't get that from college
0: right and so you at denver zoo did you work a lot with volunteers was that a major role yeah
1: so that was i was a volunteer coordinator for that was part of my job for a long time and the other part of my job was that was kind of like half of my time the other half was designing programs for the public not schools but for the the quote unquote that doesn't exist general public um designing programs for them so I developed a lot of early before school you know preschool and um, parent-child kinds of programs that the, would engage the public with the zoo in a little different way
0: I'm always thrilled to hear some one say the general public doesn't exist because <laughs> I'm always aware with the Certified Interpretive Guide Program that the most common thing you see written under audience is the general public. Right. And I, I try to disabuse them of using that term, but me too. it's not easy because they've heard it their entire life and they don't. Well, you started out with a marketing job, which is actually pretty right. Preparation for being in this field mm-hmm. uh, It helped you understand that uh, every audience is unique.
1: Right. Yep. I'll often take that answer and say, oh, the general audience, you mean seniors that in a in a, a nursing home that have come out to visit, because that's who I work with most of the time at my site. And I'll pick something that is not what they mean at all to point out that my general public those words mean something totally different to you to help drive that point home that there's no such thing as a quote general public.
0: Yeah. I actually took it the next step when I was talking about children and saying, I did school programming in Pueblo, Colorado. And most of the children in the program were on the school lunch program. They were living in homes that were below the poverty line. Most of them uh, rode dirt bikes and uh, Mm -hmm. went hunting and fishing had never been out of Colorado, moved to Fort Collins. And the children I met in Fort Collins, some of totally them- Totally
1: the opposite. Yeah. yeah.
0: They, some of them had traveled the world. Their parents worked in high-tech fields where they routinely took vacations to Hawaii, Europe, uh, Central yeah. America, whatever. And, and so <laughs> knowing the background of your audience is so critical in what we do. When you were working with volunteers had you already had the trainers course and were using the certified interpretive guide
1: no it didn't exist yet um sometime i would have to think of do you know what year the first one was i'm sure you do i never what was the first year
0: well 2000 and in 2001 is when we started training trainers
1: so i was actually done at the zoo then i left the zoo in 2000 So no, all of the work that I did with the volunteers was prior to that actual course. But we talked about, I mean, it'd be fun to go back and find my um, training stuff for that actually and see what all I did do. But there were things that I had done from the museum before, from the Heard Museum and just, again, stuff that from those NAI conferences just about, so I didn't talk about themes, I'm sure, because that didn't, wasn't the way we approached it yet, but and just taught we use. I mean, just learning how to use um, biofacts and artifacts appropriately, and how to use pictures appropriately, and just different ways to enhance their tour, and how to not tell everything that you knew about something. To pick and choose information was a big one. And, um, using questions, I did a lot on on how to use questions appropriately and intentionally, not just throwing them out there or or ignoring them, but to be very intentional about the kind of question you used. Uh, so those were some of the things that we did. I also, they used to play a game with me a couple of different places was I like to bring objects into oh, it's the tangible intangible universal sort of thing, but bring objects in to illustrate a concept. And they would like to pull objects out of the collection and show it to me. Cause I used to say that I could tie any two things together and they would bring out weird things and give me a topic and see if I could actually tie the two together. Um, so I always could figure out a way to do it. And it's about the whole idea of being the objects and things around you to help illustrate concepts. So um, those were just things I picked up through my doing it and watching. And like I said, attending workshops that later, what I liked, so that later became, got reinforced because one of the things I really got from the CIG course was things that I did that were working, I knew then why they worked. And I knew what things that I did not to change. And then I also learned a whole bunch of other things that kind of filled in little nooks and crannies in my understanding of interpretation. So that was a really valuable piece for me. It was learning, oh, that's why that works. I'm not changing that kind of thing.
0: Uh, I had a friend who was a professional video guy back in the 1970s. And he was shooting Betamax. And he came out one time and shot a video of me doing a live snake program at Giant City State Park in Southern Illinois. And I have a copy of that. He he later, 30 years later, he translated it to a digital format. So I've got a copy of it. Mm -hmm. I, I watched it and with amusement because, first of all, I did have a theme. I couldn't have told you what it was if you would have asked me. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I really stuck very tightly to snakes are a critical component of our environment that we need to protect. I stayed with that very good. But what I really did as a a sin was interpret torture. Mm -hmm. Just not knowing when to quit.
1: Right. Yep.
0: Way too many biofacts wandering around my head. Had to deliver every one of them every time, and- right?
1: Which, to me, is the most common mistake of volunteers and new new students, new out new interpreters out of college, because all of your training in your life has been, you know, so far has been learn, 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 fact, 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 and it's like, well, it must be important. I need to pass it on out to everybody else. So. It takes experience and confidence to say, I am going to choose to say this, and I don't have to share that. But I think that takes some confidence that it's okay to leave out information.
0: Yeah, I like to illustrate with people. I go, you know, if you if you could graph your talk in terms of the interest of your audience, how engaged are they? And it's a bell-shaped curve. They get yeah. very twisted and excited and then it goes down and down and down. Where do you want to leave them? And everybody knows that you want to leave them at the top.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
0: but uh, too often the temptation is to down the hill.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really good illustrated way to illustrate that. Yeah.
0: Well, every audience I've ever talked to can tell you, you want to leave them high. You want to leave them yeah. up, engaged. And yet it's so tempting to keep going. Um,
1: I think partly because you see them engaged, you are like, oh, that's good. I'll give him, I keep giving them more instead of saying, oh, that's good. I'm going to stop right there.
0: Yeah. So you were you were already into consulting when you took the trainer's course?
1: I was just going into it. I was just creating my business then. Um I left a job at the zoo. It's kind of like, what am I that because of I'd been there a long time, but because of changes in grant funding and things like that, so that that the funding wasn't there that was paying for my job. So I was like, okay, now, excuse me, what, um, what am I going to do next? And so I started my business then, and got things to sort of going and then also came up with another job. So my business, my consulting business was always, it was for a while, was kind of in the background and I would do it when I had not, I would not say when I had time or when something came around um, since I did end up with another job and like it just slowly, slowly grew and until now it's, you know, it's, I, I have worked with it.
0: What was the other job that came up that you took?
1: It was a little bit different. It was, but it had a lot of rewards. It was working for an out-of-school-time program. It was called Scholars Unlimited. It was underserved kids in um, downtown Denver. We had twelve different schools, and at one time we had, went up to sixteen. They were all government grant funded, so that's the the income. The you know they Kids just didn't have money. They were at schools that didn't ha- do much with science. And it was an afterschool program designed for kids who were s- behind in literacy, behind grade level in literacy. And so we did tutoring for that, but then we provided an enrichment program that was either the afternoons during the summer, they did literacy in the morning and they did enrichment in the afternoon, Or during the school year, they did literacy two days a week and enrichment three days a week after school. I was with that enrichment piece and they hired me to to be able to um, multi to to manage multi sites because and they weren't on site. So they were, you know, multi schools and to bring to the schools, to the kids, bring science and music and math, which had been my background. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I didn't have to do it all, but to find the other resources, to find, I had to train staff in those areas so that they could do it with the kids, find, you know, here's some easy science, here's some easy ways to do um, music with the kids and to find other providers that could come in and uh, work with the kids in those areas. So it was a little bit different level of things, was using my knowledge and and uh, bringing it up to scale, I guess you'd say, by by reaching out to others to bring it to these kids. So it's really a little bit different way of doing it, but very rewarding and, and enjoyable and challenging.
0: Well, and I didn't ask you earlier, but I should have. So I'll ask it now. Sorry. What kind of music? What got you into music?
1: Um, I had grown up uh, with piano lessons. And so in college, I was, it's classical music. And I played piano. I did a lot of accompanying uh, instrumental and voice solo performers for contests, for um, solo and ensemble contest. And then in college, I added, I played harpsichord and recorder. So uh, it's a classical background, a pretty traditional classical background. <laughs> but I loved music theory. Uh, so that's what I, that's what my music background was.
0: I, I cringe a little only because... <laughs> I
1: love the expression on your face. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I, I was a cornet player. I was oh first chair in the band and... All that, but when I was like, I don't know, thirteen or fourteen, I went to band contest and I was supposed to play Carnival of Venice. And I put the horn up to my mouth and I looked at the three judges sitting there, and I yeah. never got a sound out of it. I oh. stood there five minutes and then I ran out of the room. Stage fright, yeah, one hundred and one had started. I would. And so I- was that the
1: first time, first con- first contest, or had you done first, others? First and only. Okay.
0: I I uh, was in a band that won all first superiors at contest almost every year. We had a wonderful band director, but I was never again a solo performer. Yeah. And later in, as a at the Nature Center in Pueblo, I was in a bluegrass band as a mandolinist. and uh, I still can't play a solo in front of a group unless I've been at it for an hour. Mm. And, and my adrenaline level has settled down because I just shake and mm. a, a music mm. performance for me was always uh, too much and yet talking in front of people never was so yeah.
1: you know piano solo contests I did that every year not my favorite thing I much preferred accompanying the others who were being <laughs> who were being scored and, and judged but I totally remember that you know bank of three people that you're playing in front of and all that totally remember it I did stage band in college, in high school. I played in stage band. Uh, not I'm much better at reading music than being impromptu about it. So by music theory, they'll help me there. I was able to give me a chord, and I can play the right notes in the chord. So that was a little different, but good experience.
0: Yeah, that was my band career was reading music, but mandolin is totally by ear, ah. and I don't have to. They'll tell me uh, this is going to be in the people's key. Which is the key of G, by the way. Okay. <laughs> and it was either
1: C or G. I knew it was one yeah, or the no, other. A,
0: it's a bluegrass joke. Most okay. bluegrass musicians start out playing things in the key of G. And okay. uh, we graduate into C and D and A. And um, but that's, at any rate, I don't have to know what key we're in. I can I can play in it that's good without, yeah. without that's thinking. Good. But that's after years of jamming with people and being able to play quietly in background and not insult anyone too much. And then at some point, just realize that you hear it and you go to it. So yeah, cool. it's
1: one of the things that I always liked were our little ses- music sessions at the conferences, because it was a chance to just enjoy music with fellow people and that kind of thing. And I didn't have to be the person that everybody was staring at and listening to professionally. I, every single class I taught, no matter what age it was or what the subject was, I had music in it. Somehow we did a song or we did, you know, dance, or we listened to if I wasn't playing it myself and singing them with singing it with them, then we listened to, you know, Billy B and used one of his songs and yeah. And learned it and danced or did something with it. So I always had music in my program.
0: Yeah. I think that's great. Uh, Well, I think it's great that you found a a way to do that with kids that weren't that needed the enrichment live So, uh, so interpret this, where did that name come from? That's your business name, right? It is. Um,
1: I, when, you know, I was thinking about that when you kind of said, here's some possible questions I thought, well, there's no really amazing story behind that. When I, back in 2000, when I was putting it together and decided to do it, it's like, I need a name now. What do I make, you know, what's it going to be? And I just had a friend say, you know, I don't call me or talk to me one day and said, I have a name for you. It's interpret this. And I went, OK, so I don't have any other. OK. And in in discussing and talking about it, it just became a, a better and better fit because you can interpret the title, the name in different ways. It can be a challenge, you know, interpret this. Or if you're in a bad mood, you can kind of go interpret this. You know, so it's different ways of looking at it. And it kind of just became fun. And I just kept with it.
0: We, we always start our, when um, I do the CIG course virtually now, I, I always give them the task of writing their first themes uh, with a ballpoint pen or eyeglasses or mm-hmm. you know, a flashlight. And, you know, they always wonder why we pick something so boring. And I always try to make the point that, that if we're going to, Help you become a good interpreter. It's not that the item you're interpreting or the place or the story is so inherently interesting. It's that you're such a skilled right uh, interpreter or guide that you you know how to make it interesting and and that's a good starting point. Yeah, yeah. what's going to make it work? Yeah, and you're doing a lot of uh, training these days for NAI as a master trainer, right?
1: Correct. I after the first CIG that I took with you. I was totally, um, well, I don't know what the word is. I w- I was moved, committed to that program. I like I said, I'd been doing it a while, and I still learned things. Uh, I saw there's a lot of power in it, and it was a way to to do to get people on the same page, moving forward with common vocabulary and approaches and all that. I was just like totally committed to it. And so I started doing my own training and I've been obviously doing it at the zoo where, you know, when I was working with the volunteers and again, that uh, after school, out of school time program where I was doing it with staff. I liked training. I just love to train and not because I want to be up there in front. Look at me. I know all this. That is not my approach at all. I like same thing. That part that I like about interpretation in terms of price. I like having people find their own skills, their own meaning, their own understandings. And I see that as a trainer, that's a big piece of my job. It's yes to say, here's some skills and let's try them. But then I want to see if they can embrace them and they'll, they'll like some things and they won't like others. And they'll take some things and twist it and turn it into something totally their own. And I just enjoy that process. I enjoy watching People get, wow, this is mine. Aha. I like, you know, and I I enjoy that. So that that's the training piece that I just really enjoy doing.
0: Yeah, I always describe it as seeing the light go on behind some eyes that they go from I'm taking this course to, oh my gosh, I am really turned on. I want to do this and do it better.
1: And they come up with amazing things. They do. They make me better. You know, because they come up with amazing things.
0: And that's the story I always tell. I always suggest to people, if you really want to become great at interpretation, become a trainer.
1: Teach it, yeah.
0: Because you have to understand it better. You're continually adapting what you say to your class to help them understand. And then they do amazing things that blow your mind and that you borrow from and bring into your uh, tricks of the trade. Yeah. They help you get the points across but uh it's it's such a continual learning experience and it is yeah
1: and the audiences the people you meet and the groups that you're with and you know i do it as you do i do face-to-face and virtual and it's just you know so much fun to meet these people and the virtual ones you get people from all around the world that can can come into them and um yeah, just what their situations are, what the, the environments that they work in are fascinating. The places that they work are fascinating. The, the people they are and the skills they bring, it's just...
0: What What are some of the countries from which you've had individuals participate?
1: If they were virtual, I had somebody from China who got up at some, I forget, got like at four o'clock in the morning and ordered their time in order to take the course. Um, I've, had, I've had some people from a couple of different countries in Europe. And then I've had, I've done classes with people from Brazil and Russia, but those were face-to-face. So they were a little different.
0: I had a, uh, we had, Lisa and I had a young lady from Russia a couple of years ago. We've had a couple from Philippines. They're doing ah. two, in, two in the morning until yeah. six in the morning, which I find amazing. Ah. That's yeah.
1: It is. It's like, would you do it? I mean, I suppose you would have. That's the only way you could, but yeah.
0: Well, what's so exciting about it is through the years, we've watched people learn about interpretation in various nations around the world and then become those incredible ambassadors. I mean, right. Maria Elena Muriel, who uh, from Baja del Sur, mm-hmm. in our very first CIG test course ever in La Paz, Mexico. And then she became a trainer and a planner and and has worked all over Latin America. And we're seeing that again and again now. I wasn't crazy uh, about the idea yeah. of training virtually, but the pandemic kind of handed it to us. And actually, I enjoy it. And I, I'll that
1: you've embraced it.
0: it. Yeah, I really have. I I like it a lot.
1: I, I mean there's I think there are advantages to both ways. There's advantages to the virtual and advantages to the face-to-face.
0: So, yeah, it's a very it's a very different and rich relationship sometimes between the people in these virtual courses because I watch them. Um sometimes the chat window is as active as the training window. Oh where, yeah. Where they're talking to each other and sharing ideas and telling you, you you need to check out this website, you need to do this, you need to do that. I, I get a
1: I always think that's hard when I'm teaching it. And then that's also going on and I need yeah. to keep saying what I want to say, but I want to take part in the chat that's going on over here. It's like, Oh, my brain's <laughs> spinning.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you still work quite a bit with museums and zoos.
1: I do uh, more with museums than with zoos. Although I do training again, I do the, as a lead trainer, I train at zoos, <clears throat> but more of my work is with museums. Uh, i Right. I, well, right now I'm doing a, just finishing up the script, the text for some new exhibits at a nature center in Maryland. So nature centers, um, as well as museums. But yeah, it's anything, a lot of script, a lot of text writing, and then the training, I think are the two main things that I do now.
0: I think that's great. I always, in my 17 years at NAI as the executive director, I always found museums more challenging because so often the like the scientists curators at museums very often come at it from the factual right. artifact-based approach and uh, sometimes kind of a challenge to get they'll be called the curator of education to get them to see interpretation as a as a different approach and. Uh, but clearly, there's a lot of you who are very successful at it. I, I'm going to confess that I didn't make many inroads into the museum community. I I knew they need to be made, but I wasn't mm-hmm. skilled at doing that.
1: What I've been finding more recently is that the education, whether they're called curators or not, are looking for those places they do understand the difference and they're looking for places where they can get the training and the support to take back to administrators and other curators to say look this is the way we need to be doing it here's a a training i took here's an organization that you know i'm involved with or you could look at that are help to help them to support them and saying it's not just spilling out all the facts Do you score, are you a reviewer for CITs? No. No, no. What do you remember the question since you wrote all of this stuff in the first place? There was a question, an essay question about you have to do a program for a bunch of research people. How are you going to tell them in 500 words the value of interpretation? So many times when I get those answers back, I part of my reply is you forgot who your audience was because they totally forget that this answer that they write, that they're talking to a bunch of researchers who don't care. And so um, about interpretation, the idea is what are you going to tell them to get them to care about that? So when you were talking about the researchers, that that question came to mind.
0: Well, in fairness, a great many of those questions were written by Lisa. And
1: well, I met you as a, You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, you're kind. And you know, both of us very well. Yeah. And, you know, we've worked as a team for a long time. Yeah. But uh, in fairness, she's uh, I, th- I think she's much more skilled at some of this curriculum development type things than I am. And so so much of that program was that way. We we both continued to review when we were working in NAI because we would end up in this spot where we didn't have a reviewer for somebody and they were trying to fast track and get through the process because they were a volunteer coordinator somewhere and they they really wanted the credential. And uh, so we did a fair amount of re- reviewing back then, but I I have not done it. Uh, you know what? I don't like to grade people.
1: Well, I understand that.
0: Terrible to say because I, I still have to do it as a part of the, the – uh, CIG program, but I have loved the way the rubric developed uh, to become the way of reviewing just because it's a much more clear standard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they didn't teach rubrics in the 1960s when I was taking education courses.
1: Yeah, that's, a, I also agree with you, that's a newer concept too. Um,
0: but I like them and I use them a lot in teaching at uh, Hawaii Community College. I essentially developed rubrics for virtually everything I did there because uh-huh. I I liked being able to explain in more reasonable detail why someone was getting the grade they were getting. Great. So, what are you enjoying these days the most out of your your work?
1: What do I enjoy the most? I still like the opportunities to. I think. I guess there's two things. I like the job the being able to be creative. That's one of the things that. I've always enjoyed, and a lot of us have had opportunities as we were promoted up the ladder at jobs where we had to not be creative for a while, we were just doing administrative stuff. And so that's one of the things I wanted to kind of get rid of and have those opportunities to just be creative again. And so that's one thing that I really like. And it won't surprise you, I like to be able to come up with the ways to connect people to resources and I use that very big. I don't care if the resource is a landscape, an, uh, a historical event, a historical home or nature. I love to to find ways for people just to connect and to feel a passion that leads to whatever their level is but leads to some kind of stewardship. And that can be just having other good things to say about the resource or giving money or giving time or just the actions that they choose they decide to leave the arrowhead on the ground instead of pick it up, or they decide not to deface a tree or a, a, a monument, you know, stewardship comes in all kinds of forms. So uh, I just love having, helping people finally make those connections. And so opportunities to do that.
0: Anything you're seeing out there that excites you in the technological world? Cause we have that cable and Beck principle about right. using technology effectively. I
1: think that there's some exciting things that in terms of immersive kinds of experiences, I don't know. Did you go to, have you been able to go to any of the art immersive art ones, immersive Monet or immersive Van Gogh? So I'm not a lover of classical. Well, I'm not a lover of art. It has the old fashioned, put a picture up there, stick a name, a date and a medium, and then give me the next one. I'm not, a fan of that I I don't understand it I don't see what the they're trying to or anything like that and I went to the Immersive Van Gogh just to see what it was like and so that was a, a really interesting different interpretive experience and I truly call it an interpretive experience um, just to, to kind of have someone's painting all around you not just flat on a wall but all around you so I think that's kind of you know, I think that can be done in a lot of ways I think that you could create uh you can't visit the rainforest, but this is what it might look and sound like if you were in a room that had it all the way around you. Um, you can't visit a Civil War battlefield, but you might be able to create a semblance of what it's like and it's just it's more more senses involved than just again the 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 flat or even the three-dimensional room or whatever it's just a little a lot more sensory and we know that that's how people, you know take in, Information and how it becomes really meaningful is to involve all the senses. So that's some places I think. I think you could overuse it like anything else. You could overuse it, but I think that's one thing that's kind of exciting.
0: Yeah, I have a Venn diagram I show in CIG course that's a bubble that says thematic and a bubble that says questions and a bubble that says experience. Mm-hmm. And by experience, I mean multi century and all of those things that came out of Lisa's book on Uh uh, the whole range from the decision point to commitment. What do they do differently afterwards? And I always say, you know, there's some sweet spot in the middle if we're really good, where we design great experiences. We use enough questions to really know who our audience is and what lights them up. And we have a good, strong thematic plan. And what we're going to do. And there's that sweet spot in the middle that uh-huh. maybe, maybe we hit, maybe we don't. But I I think we're going to find, I, I like your example of immersive experiences because uh, I'm aware we went to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and he's not an artist that I admire right. a lot. And worse yet, their choice there in how to explain his art was to show artists that had influenced him mm. and they would have a picture by that artist next to his and i would go oh well that's much better <laughs> yeah so i i'm aware that realism versus expressionism and a lot of these these uh things in the art world i'm not as in in tune with but uh I would love to see the Van Gogh immersive experience and yeah. It that. was
1: fun. It was worth doing. And there's one out now on Monet. So Oh, there is. Yeah. Great. There's a mo- there's In a the Monet ocean. one. I haven't yeah. seen it, but there's a Monet one too. It just takes them a while to get across the ocean to you.
0: <laughs> well then we are out on the most remote inhabited island <laughs> planet. <so. laughs> Uh, one final question because we've been at it for almost an hour okay uh, you went to Tanzania with us recently uh-huh. March of this year. How was that for you what was what was the kind of the highlights of that experience for you as a traveler
1: So I think there were three highlights. One was going with people that knew each other everybody there knew other people there we might not have known everybody but so you came into a group that you didn't have to start at ground zero figuring out the dynamics of the group you already knew some and i love that and then that grew to knowing the others that were there so that was so you felt like you were traveling with friends um i also really liked the variety of places we went they weren't all the same and i really liked the variety of places that were visited and you'll laugh at the last one. I loved since the last time I went to Africa, I was the leader. I love being able to just be a participant and not have to do any of the problem solving or planning or any of that that goes along with a trip. Um, and even if there weren't many, you still had to decide, well, are we going out on this drive tonight or not? Some of the group wants to, some of the group doesn't. Are we going to, what are we going to do about the rain that's coming in? I didn't have to worry about any of that. I didn't even care what decision you made, but I didn't have to be part of it. So that's the other thing. Those are the three things that definitely stood out to me. And I have to say, it was mo- mostly Sharon's, but I loved her enthusiasm. A lot of us said that for things the things we saw. Um, such a, a childlike, um, oh my, to, you know, how wonderful to everything she saw. I thought that was really cool.
0: We're talking about Sharon Hosko, who Hosco, uh huh, was a nature center director in Cleveland Metro Parks, and who is a wonderful photographer, and uh, she's going with us again.
1: Right. Uh, she's all excited.
0: Yeah, I think one of the fun things for us in doing East African trips has been to have people say, "Well, I went there to see the wildlife, and I, I left." so in love with the communities and the people I met. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll be doing that again. It's great catching up with you after all these years. Is there anything we've missed that you wanted to talk about?
1: Uh, no, I, I think this is, this is for me being a lot of fun. Like you said, to touch base, we don't ever have an hour conversation together. So that was a lot of fun uh, and allowed me to, to both to reflect and to think forward on some things and kind of where what will the future, maybe I can ask you that with all the people you've talked to, where do you see interpretation going?
0: If I think about where it's headed, I think we have got to continue to be inspirational as individual interpreters and guides to the point that we aren't replaced by a computer bot or by an, an animatronic version of us. And I think that's Reasonable and possible. I don't think, despite the fact that we have a generation that are, uh, or two maybe now, that are digital natives, because I guess my son is as well, uh, which would be generation X. They grew up with all of this. It's gonna change again wildly with AI and with virtual reality and some of these new technologies and i think we need to not be afraid of them we need to yeah. learn about them collaborate with them and not allow the strength of people helping other people make a connection that's still so vital you mentioned it in your own thing when you're when you're a group leader taking people out you've got to be focused on so many different things you kind of can't lay back and be a full participant is right. of, of the audience. And yet, uh, sometimes that's the joy of, a wildlife or a cultural or, a an experience. The field we've worked in is so engaging and fun and, and rich. And I don't know, it never grew old on me. <laughs> well, I hope we keep running into each other and just feel in a variety of ways. And, uh, I appreciate you taking time to be with me today.
1: Well, thank you for asking me to join you. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks, Karen, for joining me today. My next guest on January 26 is Jay Miller, Certified Interpretive Trainer, Certified Interpretive Planner, former president of National Association for Interpretation, owner of Interpretive Communications, an interpretive training and, and planning consultancy firm. And we'll be talking about his 37 years working at Arkansas State Parks, most of those years as Chief of Interpretation, and his continuing consultancy work in retirement. Thanks again to Mark Stovall for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time, it's Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week.